Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm humbled to call today's guest a dear friend, and I am always in awe of her grace, strength, and the gentleness of her presence. Dr. Faye Murray is one of those rare gems of a soul that by showing up, it makes a room just glow. She is also the reason that tonight's episode will be fun and functional and fabulous, but you know, just saying. (laughs) So um, the backstory, because if you know me, there's always a backstory. I first met Faye a few years ago at a CSEP conference. And for those of you that don't know, CSEP stands for Council of State Association Presidents. Faye was serving as the president of Arizona, and I was serving as the president-elect of South Carolina when we first landed at the same breakout round tables. And it truly was nerdy gal love at first sight. And the best part is that I get to call her friend. So when I was out visiting their amazing Arizona State Hearing Association convention, 
P.S. Mark your calendars for April 3rd through 4th, 2020 in Phoenix, Arizona for next year's convention. Y'all, they put on an amazing show and it's like the craziest reds you've ever seen because Phoenix is not green, it's red. So just saying. Um, but back to the story at hand. So this past April, I was out there and I managed to sweet talk her into doing on a pod course on a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts. And and that's the ethics behind evaluating and treating patients who speak a different language. So for me, this is important because as I have said in the past, I speak English and bad English. And uh, um, I mean, it's pretty clear. The hills are in my bones and um, God help me because sometimes they fall out my mouth when I forget that like proper grammar is a thing. Or if I go to someone and I'm around someone who also um, speaks like they stepped out of the Appalachia, it just happens, y'all. So for me, this is a really deep professional concern is I am clearly not equipped, nor do I feel that it's appropriate for me to eval or treat a patient that speaks any other language other than my own, as I don't have that knowledge base. It is simply not in my wheelhouse. Now, for Faye, not only is it professional, but it's also deeply personal, as she herself is a bilingual clinician. So, Faye, lay it on us. Where are you from? How did you become this amazing SLP? And how did you learn to speak two languages? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Well, hello. I am absolutely speechless by this amazing (laughs) introduction. I'm, I'm very humbled and Yes, all of it is true. So I'm I'm a, a big fan of Michelle. Um, so I was born and raised in Cuba, and I came to the United States when I was ten years old, and I was a monolingual English speaker at the time. Um, but what does uh, that mean? Mean that I I mean. I, I was a monolingual, monolingual. I'm sorry, monolingual Spanish speaker. I wasn't. A, I didn't okay. speak any English, and which is really interesting because they say that it takes you know so many years to learn um, a second language, but a lot of it has to do with your personality and your um, uh, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. I'm an extrovert, so I think I was probably monolingual <laughs> for maybe ten minutes. You know, I I dove right in, and um, you know, most SLPs like to talk, and I think a lot of us are born talkers. Um, there are you know some that are extroverts, and, but and introverts. But for me, um, I learned to speak English. English. It took me about, I would say, it took me maybe six months to have. Um, you know, to be able to speak to friends and, and get around. And then it was a process of learning more of the academic English. So going into middle school and high school, I was still, still doing a lot of interpreting. Um, and But uh, I went to college without really knowing uh, what the field was going to, what field I was going to go into and uh, found speech pathology my sophomore year and never looked back. And so I went to graduate school like all of your listeners did. And at that time, I'm, I'm a little older than you, an older <laughs> generation uh, by a lot. <laughs> but at that time, we really didn't have any coursework on bilingual issues or multicultural issues. It just wasn't it, you know. Um, so I didn't, I became a speech pathologist. I ended up working with um, children who were migrant workers um, and uh, also in, in California and in Arizona. And then I, I met my current husband, and he, he was working in, um, in the Navajo Reservation. And so here I was a bilingual Spanish-English speech pathologist without really a lot of background on what that meant. And I ended, up, I ended up working in the Navajo Nation where no one spoke Spanish. It was Navajo and Navajo-influenced English. It was a, a dialect of English. Um, and now I became, like everyone else, a monolingual speech pathologist because my Spanish didn't really... Uh, serve me there. Um, and so that's what started my quest into figuring out how do I, how do I do this uh, ethically? How do I do the right thing for the children that I work with? How do I um, find out if this is a, a disorder or not? A lot of things didn't make sense. I was given standardized tests and such. And so that led on a quest to find out how to do this uh, appropriately. And it led into a doctoral program um, so that I could get more education. So it's kind of a long journey and I'm still learning. And um, I did a lot of things wrong along the way. And now I'm trying to rectify that and to spread the joy. <laughs> I, I love that. Yes, because it's always interesting to me when I have a student and they assume that I know all the things. And I'm like, I 
feel like I'm barely scratching the surface and I'm still learning, but I feel like if you're able to admit that like, dude, I totally did that wrong back in the day, but I'm better than I was. I feel like that means you have a soul for growth and you right. continue. Yes. Continue. Okay. Now I'm just curious. Do you speak any Navajo? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's when I try to speak Navajo, it comes out as profanities. So it's not, a, <laughs> you know, Navajo is a tonal language. And, um, and sometimes I meant, I mean to say puppy and I come out saying what comes out of the puppy's rear instead. They're very oh, close. So, <laughs> so I understand a little tiny bit and the pronunciation is very difficult. And so, no, I never, I never picked up Navajo to a, a, a fluency uh, stage. So I speak Spanish and I speak English. And now I'm, a, you know, I work now um, in my current job. I, I do work with children and adults who speak a variety of languages. I, I have a Mandarin uh, a per- person that I work with. Someone who speaks Mandarin. I have uh, French. I have German. I have um, I have, uh, of course, Navajo, Spanish, and Korean, and other languages. Just like many of the SLPs that are out there, we are um, exposed to so many different cultures in the schools and in you know clinical settings that we're at. So, and, and I don't speak any of those languages. I speak Spanish and English. Okay. I would just want to take a second. Everybody that is out there, if you are listening, I'm not sure if you caught it, but the tail end of July, ASHA put out an ASHA take action and it was on their advocacy page. Um, And this perfectly ties into our topic of the day. And it was all about asking um, our individual state representatives to take action on the promote workforce diversity and allied health professionals. Yes. And that, um, if you didn't catch it, you can go to the ASHA Advocacy Facebook page and they have it posted there. And if you've never done one of their advocacy um, actions, it's super easy. You click on it, you put your name and your address in, it automatically populates your um, local representative And then it will send them an email. But the goal of that um, legislation is to help offset the graduate school tuition for um, uh, our our colleagues or our future colleagues that will bring um, variety in um, backgrounds and ethnicities and languages to our field. Uh, Because what was was the statistic, Faye? Something like over 90% or 80% of clinicians are like... Above, it's above 95%. Um, I would say, you know, it's like something like uh, 5% of the workforce right now are um, culturally diverse. And, yes. and, uh, and biling- in, in some of those aren't even bilingual. So. Yes. <laughs> so. and, and, and if you look at the children and the adults that we work with, that is not reflective of our nation and those that are in need. So please, I do. Re- I mean, I am asking, um, pitch big girl britches on if you're a gent. Um, I don't know what you call the underoos, um, <laughs> but um, take action, do the thing. <laughs> very easy. If you, you are right, it's very easy to do. Yes. Okay. All right. So uh, we opened the gate and diverted. So let's get back on track. All right. So what are some of the most common myths that people have about bilingualism? Because I know one right out the gate. And that's, I mean, if, well, if my kid is learns a second language, then they won't learn the first language. Because I battle that with ASL when I'm trying to teach ASL. Well, if they learned how to talk with their hands, they're not going to talk with their mouth. So that's like, I carry that over to like... And with AAC, you've heard of that with yes. AAC as well. Yes. Have a device. They're not going to then speak. Um, yes. But which so, is wrong. Which is, which is wrong and inaccurate. You know, and, and another myth that I hear all the time is that that if they're learning two or more languages at the same time, that it causes confusion, that it causes a language delay. Um, and, and so many uh, professionals out there, pediatricians, um, you know, whoever, teachers, and even many SLPs will tell the parents, uh, unfortunately, erroneously, that they should just pick one language and stick to that because it will cause um, confusion if they 
if they expose the child to two languages. Um, that is wrong. not true. That is not true. None of the research backs that. We think that it makes sense. In our in our mind, we're thinking, well, that makes sense that a child, especially someone with a with delayed cognitive skills or delayed language, um, but the research just does not, they've done research on children with uh, on the spectrum with autism, children with Down syndrome, children of all different um, uh, backgrounds, and they have not found that to be true. Um, what is true is that children should be able to communicate in whatever language the family uses. So whatever dynamic um, of the family, um, whether that's a, a code switching where they're going back and forth and saying words in Spanish and words in English, or or maybe um, they, they speak with grandma in one language and with another family member in another, that is how the household works. That's how the dynamics of the household. So when we tell a family, don't speak this language at home, only speak English, or or whatever language we advise, then what we're telling them essentially is ignore the that part of your family and ignore that dynamic. The child cannot be part of that. And so when you think about it that way, we are actually um, uh, separating the child from what the other family is exposed to. And we're asking sometimes the parents to do something that's unnatural. And many times they just can't comply anyway. So we have a a bilingual parent who speaks both, and I'm going to use Spanish just for the sake of it, but who uses both Spanish and English in the home. And maybe they're stronger in their Spanish than their English. And we tell the parent something like, you should be talking to them in English so that they're ready for kinder- preschool, kindergartner for life. Then we're forcing that parent to speak. Maybe they're not fluent in English. So then they're modeling a language that's not natural for them, and maybe they're not proficient in it. Um, the rest of the time, that parent's not going to stop speaking Spanish. They will turn around to their spouse or to their other children or to their friends, and they'll be speaking the native language, but then they're not encouraging their child to learn that. They're teaching them English. So now the child becomes separated from maybe grandma or maybe uh, other functions that happen in the household. They're ostracized because they're not learning the language or the dialect of the home. Um, okay. So when I was in Arizona, um, I, there was um, a sweet friend, Jackie um, came over from New Mexico and she was telling me, and Jackie, I'm going to share this and ask forgiveness later. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, she said that when she was growing up, uh, her family, they were native Spanish speakers and they um, were encouraged not to speak um, Spanish, but to speak um, to speak English, because they were afraid that they wouldn't be prepared for school. So their families would not allow them to speak Spanish in the home. And they were, you know, she's a speech pathologist, totally, <laughs> totally, typically developing. Oh my God, she's brilliant and kind, and <laughs> warm and fuzzy, and you would love her. Um, but um, also, Jackie join the New Mexico board. They will love you. Um, (laughs) But, um, and and that blew my mind, but she said that it was frowned upon to speak her native language. And now she was like, you know, I, she was like, I look like I should speak Spanish, but I only speak English. And you know, that they're losing that part of their, their culture and their identity. And that thought had never crossed my mind that, a family would do that to in under the misinformation that that would help them succeed in life. Yes, that actually. Um, yes, that, that was, we did that. The schools uh, did that. Um, they uh, they encouraged the parents, and in fact, in many places, they actually children were punished for speaking their native language. Um, you know, horrible. many of my Navajo friends will tell you, I, I know people who were sent to boarding schools and they had fi- they were physically punished. They were trying to get them to assimilate, make them American. And that American at that time meant English speaker. Um, you know, you dress a certain way, you speak a certain way, um, you know, you anything that looks foreign, we need to strip that away. That was the thought at that time. And so, um, I have personal friends who have told me stories of, of being physically corp- having corporal punishment uh, um, because they were speaking their, their native tongue. So these children, for example, in the Navajo culture who were taken to these, um, these boarding schools, taken away from their families during the school year, whether it be in a home or, or actual an actual um, dormitory at a very young age, they were um, stripped of their... Um, of their culture and, and language is a huge part of culture. So then the yeah. children would go home in the summers to back to their families and they couldn't communicate with them. 
Um, they had to, you know, relearn um, their their Navajo or they had to relearn their their culture. Um, and that was very difficult. You know, right now what I see happening with some of these families that are choosing to, um, because you can choose. Families can choose. I'm only going to speak English. It should always be family choice. We should always say, what would you like for him to be able to speak as he grows older? What do you foresee him, um, you know, how interacting, who do you foresee him interacting with? Um, so, but I have some families that I've worked with that have chosen to just speak English to their children. And um, maybe one spouse will speak English and the other spouse spouse speaks Spanish. And what happens is now that child can't communicate with his dad. Or that child maybe can't communicate with his mom. So then they use the older siblings as an interpreter for their own child. I've seen this. And you can- For their own kid to interpret their own little one. Exactly. So you can see how that kind of changes the whole power dynamics in the home when you have given power to an older sibling to actually do maybe the disciplining or the counseling. As these children who cannot communicate with their parents, you know, grow older and they become teenagers and they can't communicate with their parents in their parents' tongue. Um, You know, even less, less, yeah, it's crazy. And and even well, less crazy than that, but just as sad is, is children who cannot speak to their grandparents. So they lose that generational, that wisdom, that, that nurturing that you get from extended families. Um, You know, they, they might go to a family event and there's grandma in a corner talking to older family members and all the grandchildren just look at her and aren't able to, to dialogue with her and to, to get the knowledge and the experience and, and the love that, that is passed down through, um, through a heritage language. So it's, it's all very, very sad. Um, there's a lot of language loss that happens throughout the languages. Usually by the, the second generation, it's gone. So you get the first person like me that comes in and maybe my children might speak some of that language. By the next generation, it's already, it's gone. Um, there is this idea that, you know, if we have so many languages, then we're going to lose English. English is never going to be lost. It's a, it's a dominant language uh, all over the world. It's a language of money. You know, it's a language of power. Um, so that's never going to be lost. It's these other languages that are secondary that carry um, so much uh, culture and, and identity. Um, plus, a lot of the research shows that bilingualism is actually a, a very positive thing that we are able, when you're able to express in multiple languages that, uh, you know, you cognitively, you're able to understand um, uh, in concepts and communicate concepts that might not be something that is, is easily communicated in one language, but you can do so in others. When my sisters and I are talking to each other, we code switch all the time. We are both, we're, we're all fluent in Spanish and in English. And we talk at the same time, of course, all of us, there, there are four of us. And uh, so it's crazy loud and just, uh, you know, whole wonderful Cuban thing. And, um, and sometimes we say things in the language where it communicates it best. Um, there are times that we're speaking in English because that communicates it best. My, my academic language in English is much stronger. My love language is much stronger in Spanish. Um, also, there's some, you know, some uh, feelings or things that it's better communicated in shorter and even more specific in that other language. So bilingualism is definitely um, is, is, a, is, a, is a plus. And other parts of the world do it all the time. Children are raised learning two or three languages. It's only weird here in, the, in this country. But in other countries, you would never hear, oh, don't mix the don't mix languages, don't teach them too many languages. It might confuse them. That's an American thing. That's not what the rest of the world believes or, or practices. Well, we actually just enrolled both of our children in a Mandarin immersion school. So cool. Oh my gosh. It's so cool. They totally think that they have gone to ninja school because they're (laughs) boys and they're in karate. And we um, are really into um, Kung Fu Panda. Um, And I haven't yet had the heart to tell them that they're not actually going to grow up and be ninjas. I'm kind of assuming that they're going to figure that out along the way. Can I tell you how much I love this? <laughs> oh my God, this is great. They're like, you know, so what do you do today? They're like, we did not learn karate moves. I'm like, that's okay. We're going to go right down the street to karate class and they'll, and they'll, and they'll follow it through. Right. Don't worry about this. I'm like, but like, Oh my God, I'm lying to my children by omission, but you know, it's fine. It's cool. I remember uh, my son coming home from kindergarten, his second day. And he says, I haven't learned how to read yet. Oh my God, that's I don't know what, you know, this is a false advertising. He just, what's the deal? 
Anyway. <laughs> oh boy, moms. Y'all, I won't even tell you how many super amazing gross boy mom conversations that um the lovely Faye and I have had. I yeah. will spare you the details, but if you're a boy mom out there listening, or if you're pregnant with a boy, imagine something gross and it will get 40 times grosser. But then they'll turn around and say, I love you and you're beautiful and you're the princess. And that's right. And um, everything's better. Yes. And everything's better. So while everything has a mysterious smell of poo somewhere, but like it will be better. Okay. Don't All stick right. so, don't stick your hands in your boys' pockets. Yeah, ever. ever. Or let them say, here, hold this without or, first inspecting what they're handing to you. Absolutely. Like, truth. Truth. Yeah, truth. <laughs> okay. So what other common myths are there out there? Um, there are myths regarding uh the Therapy that, for example, that idea law um, does not because we're supposedly an English only country or whatever, that we are unable to do therapy in any other language but English because it is against some law. And some states do have an English only law, etc. But none of that is true. We are, can provide therapy in any language that 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 the child speaks. And so that's, we're dealing with the disability. We're not dealing with language competency. And so many times we think, um, you know, that when we're testing or when we're assessing, we're, we want to see um, how much English they know versus how much the other language they know. And that's true. But what we're looking at is how do they communicate? We're looking for language disorders and, and, and disabilities. So when a child uh, is speaking another language, we have to find out if they have that disability in that language. And so we need to assess and sometimes we need to do treatment in that language when possible. Um, and that's not against any law, and it's not un-American, so um, that's also tends to be a, a myth. Um, there's also this this other myth that um, this somehow uh, there's a language delay when children are learning two languages. That there's a this we're just going to wait and see um, because they'll outgrow it. You know, this is part of their second language, and and not really. That's not that's not true. There's not a delay that happens when children are learning two languages. So that's that's a huge myth. It's not illegal to work with children with two languages. It's, you know, it's, there's no delay and there's no confusion. So if we can get all those things cleared out, then we can talk about what really difficult is. How do I do this? You know, how do I? Yeah. Yeah. What? How, <laughs> you know, that's, I don't even know. That's um, that's what I want to know because. I mean, I one time got called in to do an eval on a man that only spoke Guinea, which is like a regional. And if you, if anybody out there has heard the term Guinea, then you too are from the waters on the um, Northern Peninsula in Virginia, which ain't that big. And I spoke English and bad English and the janitor had to, the janitor and the wife had to act as our translators because they were the only people that understood Guinea. Um, and that was, and he had absolutely no um, deficits anywhere. And there was definitely some four letter words that I perfectly understood. Next <laughs> well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but okay. So that, all right. So next question, in what ways can a monolingual SLP, such as myself, I only speak English, conduct an eval and deliver meaningful services and intervention when a child is a dual language learner? So, um, very good question and very difficult to answer. But, but I, but the the crest of it is that we have to understand that there aren't a lot of bilingual SLPs out there. So, no, you know, no. they just aren't. And so we we can't just all the all the time say, well, they've got to be tested by a bilingual SLP. They need to be provided services by a bilingual SLP. I mean, there just aren't out there. You know, we're trying, and I think that the the roles are increasing. But even so, I am a bilingual SLP, and that took a lot of uh, of learning and having to go back to school and and finding out how to um, talk about Spanish the same way that I talk about English development. Um, so it's not a it's not a given that when somebody is uh, bilingual that you are a bilingual SLP. That's not a given, first of all. So we have a lot of SLPs out there that speak two languages, but haven't been trained in that first language, that other language that they speak. So that even lowers the numbers even more so, right? Um, and so what do we do? Realistically, what do we do? Well, um, we are going to have to start learning to use interpreters. And, and we're going to have to start to look at the things that we can do. Um, many times I start out 
in the schools, um, and I can talk about, you know, EI a little bit as well, but in the schools, I have the team do all the work for me to find out the um, how the child is assimilated. So, you know, how long they've been in this country, um, what kind of services that they've had, um, you know, what, you know, what, what are the, what are the concerns? And so get all that background information. I also like the, to find out in what context does a child speak the other languages and to what percentage? And so there are out there, there are several um, surveys that are done that are like input output surveys um, to find out how much of that language the child understands of each language and how much is, how much of that does he speak? If a child, for example, um, is listening to more than 80% of one particular language. And he also, you know, expresses himself in more than 80% of that particular language. Then the eval should be done in that language. So is, um, the eval so is 80% the standard so let's say that it, should be looking for? It's like a, above 80%. But I'm going to say that I'm not talking about standardized tests. I'm talking about just doing the evaluation in that primary language. You're not going to turn away, but you could say that he's primary 80% and above that, that he's more of a, 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 of a speaker of, let's say, Spanish. Okay. So you have a child that is speaking mostly 80% um, uh, Spanish understanding and, and, um, and expressing himself in that language. Then that evaluation needs to be done in Spanish. And that could be done with an interpreter. Um, and we'll have to, or, you know, obviously the first thing, the best would be a bilingual, a, a certified qualified bilingual SLP. If that same child who's growing up as a, as a dual language learner is more, is listening, uh, speaking more English then the evaluation can be done in English. However, you do not dismiss the fact that he's a dual language learner. We have no standardized out. We have maybe one, <laughs> but we really don't have a lot of standardized tests out there that um, that are normed on dual language learners. They just don't exist. We have the BESA, which is a Spanish English, and it's only for ages four to six. And I know Dr. Peña is working on an extension, but we really don't. We have um, like even the PLS. I mean, if you look at uh, the norm group, a lot of it is you know is. Um, uh, well, the PLS in general. Yeah, the PLS in general. Exactly. Let's put it out there. Uh, but what is Puerto Rican children from New York? I mean, and so you look at the self, for example, and it's monolingual children who are, are not dual language learners. That's the norm group. So you really can't compare these children that are being raised uh, as dual language learners um, to the norm groups of these tests that do not um, have a significant representation of dual language learners in their norms. So there's nothing out there. So. You have to look and see what what am I what is it that I'm looking for? What are the we do a comprehensive evaluation? We're looking at articulation, we're looking at language, we're looking at voice and fluency. We do oral mech exams. It's the same, right? As you would, but now you don't have standardized tests. You can use some of the subtests and just not score them. There, there you can do narrative analysis. There are lots of free um, uh, resources out there. Um, so, so the actual what you would test. Is the same as you would do with other children. You just can't use uh, norms because there are none. And that's what makes it very difficult. And so we go back to our training and we do our very best. And if a child, for example, has maybe 40%, um, uh, he's expressing himself in, in one language 40%, and he's maybe listening um, 60% at home, he hears it. And then maybe at school, he's actually hearing more like, you know, over um, 90% at school in English, and he's maybe expressing maybe 80%. Then that child is a dual language learner. He's being exposed to two languages. And so you must assess in both languages. You want to find out if he has a language difference or a disorder. A difference is, is, uh, um, uh, is, when his language is actually um, what he's saying, what he's understanding, that is, um, it's due to the fact that he has two languages. So he's maybe there's some mixture, maybe there's some influence of the other language and, and not really due to a disability. So we have to make that distinction. So for example, if a child can't say the SH sound in English, shh, you know, and he's been referred to you for that, it could be that he has an accent that he doesn't have that SH. You, actually, TH is a biggie. I mean, there are very few languages that use TH. And, and, and so a lot of people from different countries really? come in and they have to learn the TH sound. So if he's I being... I no idea. Yeah, oh yeah, TH is hard for just about everybody around the world. So 
If you if your child's <laughs> refer to you because he's not using the TH sound, um, then you have to look and do consonant inventories of his original language, of his home, his heritage language. And those are found on the ASHA website. It's pretty cool. And other places such as, I think, Portland State University. And there's just many different resources that I, I can I can give you if you can put up on your website if you'd like. But um, yes. yeah, so you can look at constant, you can do constant inventories. What sounds are found in his language? What sounds are found in English? And then you look at those that are common and and then you look those that are not found in either one and you can determine oh you know what he doesn't have the sh in his language so he's kind of not producing it or maybe using that substitution because of this language difference because he doesn't have it and so he's using you know an approximation because he has an accent okay so that's not a disability you there are people in our field that work on accent reduction that's perfectly okay but that's not billable it's not a disability okay that's a difference and so the same thing could be said for, you know, language, like structure, like syntax. If a child is maybe putting the adjective and, you know, um, after the noun or, or maybe they're not using, um, you know, the plural forms or, or uh, just a different sentence structure. You have to look at what those structures are in his original language and see if that's the reason why. Because uh, most of the time, <laughs> you know, there's that influence from the, from the other language that sometimes is a temporary thing, especially if they're just uh, learning the language. Sometimes it's something that, that persists and then we can address that at a, at a different point. Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 SpeechTherapyPD.com Conference at Sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a, a three-hour course, a two-hour course, a one-hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three-hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult pod course podcast that we just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD conference at sea, um, which is July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're going to see real life bears and like, hopefully we'll get to see Northern Lights. So whoop, whoop, see you at sea. Bye. I have like 400 questions. Oh, wow. Only okay. <laughs> no, no. Like, I mean, like my brain's on fire and like I'm dying. Okay. So one, you said something in passing. Um, just to clarify, you said Asha has um, a consonant or phonemic inventory of different languages on their website. Absolutely. Yes, they People, do. Is, is it under the practice portal? I'm assuming it's, it's under the practice portal. portal. I believe it's the multicultural section, but you can actually just go in there and look. And not only consonant inventories, but they also have sections where they talk about just the structure of the language, the syntax and pragmatics. And and they even have links to articles and links to other places where, where these things are discussed. It's a wonderful resources and pe resource and people don't even know that we have it. So the first thing I do when I have somebody on my caseload you know, I look up as much as I can about that culture and that language. I become, I try to, to find out about it, you know, whether I'm going to use an interpreter or not. Um, sometimes my interpreters are my cultural brokers. So they kind of help me to figure out, okay, how do I, which, because like, for example, in Navajo land, um, you know, if you're a traditional Navajo person and they live, you live in a hogan, which is a round home, you come in through the left and around. You don't come into the right through the front door. You don't really knock at the door. There's all of these pragmatic, um, these, these cultural, um, norms that you need to just be aware of. So you're, you know, so you're just aware that it's a difference. Maybe the child won't look you in the eye and that's not a sign of autism. That's a cultural thing. Children in certain cultures are not encouraged to look at an adult directly in the face. That's considered disrespectful or they're not supposed to walk next to you. They're supposed to walk so many, you know, feet behind you. So, 
a lot of times we have to be careful that we don't label those as, that, oh, okay, he's pragmatically inappropriate. He's on the spectrum when it's really cultural. So it's good to go to these resources and, and kind of familiarize yourself. You're not going to be an expert, but you need to go in armed. So wherever you land. Hold that thought. One thought. Also, people, when you're going into their homes, this is so much more because you're going there instead of them coming to you at the clinic. So always make sure that you have a pair of clean socks in your bags because I've worked with um, EIs and SLPs in the past and students that were like slip on shoes or didn't have socks. And then the families asked them to take their shoes off before they enter the door or as soon as they enter the door or um, you have to wash in, you know, like the bathroom or the kitchen sink and, you know, those, those factors. So make sure that you, like she said, research it before you go in. That way, when you go to their homes to do the eval, you don't cause offense on accident. Um, okay, sorry, continue. Go. No, this is great. People are very um, forgiving because they they don't expect you to know everything. But I think part of our professional practice is that we try to arm ourselves with as much information as we can. So wherever you land, wherever you're at, whatever region of the of the country you're in, you you should learn about the cultures that are around you. you you're going to become sort of like a, a, a mini, you know, mini expert. Some places they have so many cultures and countries. But you tend to, um, to start familiarizing yourself is what you should do with the, the dialects and the and the languages and the cultural norms of those groups. And I'm saying dialects, this is really important. There are people who say they speak English and they're monolingual English speakers. They'll tell you that. But many people are speaking a dialect or a form of English that is um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just what it is. It's part of their culture. And so they'll say, oh yeah, we speak only English, but they're speaking a dialect of English and not a standard form. And so we have to be aware of what that sounds like and what is, uh, appropriate in that language. You know, what maybe it's going to be phonology. It could be syntax. It could be semantics. Um, and make sure that you know that so that you are able to tell, is this child different? This is a difference or a disorder, even in the dialect. So it's not just about a second language. It could be a dialectal difference. Um, and also voice. Yes. Y'all, the voice. One of my former students was from Wisconsin. And bless her soul, when she went to grad school down here, um, there was a significant confusion because she went from, um, they actually wanted to put her in voice therapy for hypernasality, but that was how she learned to talk where she was from in Wisconsin. And so, I mean, <laughs> we speak standard English, but I mean, that's a dialectal, that, that hypernasality of speech is different. And she was like, I speak totally fine. Y'all sound different, but she didn't say y'all. <laughs> it was the way that she attempted to say y'all. I was like, honey, we don't say y'all like that down here. You got to put a diphthong in there. Y'all. <laughs> like, okay. All right. And you said something else like, like 20 minutes ago, but like, I'm still racking my brain around it. You said certified bilingual clinician. Well, so what, what is that? Yeah, ASHA does not certify a bilingual clinician. So they don't do that. But many states will have certain certifications. And I, I can think of New York right now. Um, the farther east you go, the more certifications you need to practice different. You come down, down to the west, we'll just take just, you know, anyone. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> move to so Arizona. That's right. Come over to Arizona. But, you know, so there are ethical considerations um, with who can call themselves a bilingual uh, speech language pathologist and, 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 uh, and or audiologist and who cannot. And, um, and ASHA actually has uh, principles uh, of uh, what they, they want, what they consider um, uh, that you, they have principles of what they recommend a bilingual uh, therapist should have, like the knowledge they should have. It's on their website. And so um, they have a, you know, they have a code of ethics about cultural competence. I'm trying to quickly look it up because I didn't expect that uh, question right away, but I have it I'm, right I'm in sorry. front of me. I, no, no, I no. It's, so it's so on the ASHA. I know it's on the ASHA website. And, and pretty much it means that you should be able, if you're bilingual, you should be able to describe the processes of, of normal speech language acquisition um, for monolingual and bilingual um, individuals. Um, for those languages that you speak. You should be able to administer and interpret assessments in those two languages. You should be able to, to uh, provide intervention 
in both of those languages. You should be able to be aware of the cultural factors. And here's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm Cuban. I grew up in Southern California after I, I arrived in the, you know, Central American, South American community. I, I didn't, you know, so, but I'm Cuban. And so I speak the Cuban dialect and I know different dialects, the Colombian dialect, the, you know, the different dialects. But just because you speak Spanish doesn't mean that you are culturally competent to, to treat, um, different you know, people from different dialects of Spanish. Um, so I just remembered this really quickly. I remember the the Miss America or the Miss Universe pageant many, many years ago. And this beautiful, um, I want to say somewhere from Nicaragua, I don't know, some beautiful uh, contestant walked up and they asked her, you know, what is your favorite food? And the interpreter say, you know, ¿Cuál es tu comida favorita? What's your favorite food in Spanish? And she answered back in Spanish, oh, me encanta la ropa vieja. Uh, and so the what interpreter, the interpreter responded, Oh, she loves uh, old clothes. And so oh my God. ropa vieja is a dish that is shredded beef. So um, he didn't know that about her culture. So he translated or interpreted, um, you know, literally. And, and she probably lost the crown because of that. But, <laughs> but you know, so just because someone is, uh, is bilingual doesn't necessarily mean that they're culturally competent in, in that person's um culture they might share you know the think about people who speak english in in australia versus you know um the british islands and in, 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 you know the and the united states and how different we say things um and maybe our localisms or our you know our um you know just some of the ways we express maybe their vocabulary or even our syntax sometimes changes so you have to be competent in the languages that you're assessing and just and being aware um, that's what, what Asha uh, recommends. So if you are unable to explain developmental norms in that primary language, then you probably need to, you know, start studying and look at those things and um, see if you can meet the criteria that Asha puts out there. Other places, like in New York, they actually make you take a test, you know, and you have to, you cannot treat as a bilingual SLP unless you have that certificate. But Asha doesn't have that certificate. I'm just thinking, how would they be able to... Uh, assess because there's so many different types, like you just described dialects and New York is the like melting pot of our nation. I mean, I have family that came through Ellis Island. Like we, we went and we, we found like, you know, the, their signatures from Switzerland when they came over. And then I'm like, I'm like the ultimate melting pot. I'm Swiss, I'm Irish and I'm Cherokee. And I remember if anybody's ever been to Boone, North Carolina, they have the um, Trail of Tears as told from the um, Cherokee perspective and the um, um, Caucasian American perspective. And my dad took us to both. He said, you need to understand that you are both. And both of these are your people. And it was so hard for me at 10 to rectify that some of my people wanted to inflict harm on the other people. And it just, but like, what a profound upbringing I mean, that, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my little dome around that. Okay. So, right, so what, I, I, what do we do? What do we do when? Because I, I mean, I live in Columbia, South Carolina. Y'all, we speak basically only standard English. We have very few interpreters. Our early intervention system is completely overwhelmed. And we do have a major researching university right smack dab in the middle. So sometimes we have... Um, patients that are children of professors or PhD students from around the world. And I had one that wanted me to go out and do therapy with a child who clearly had signs and symptoms of autism, but the family spoke Tagalog. Am I, I don't even know if I'm saying that. Right. Tagalog, yeah. it's, uh, and that was, that was very- Philippines, yeah. Yes. And so dad was pursuing a degree here. Mom spoke- um, some English, but during the day, the child was with grandma who did not speak any English. And I walked in and felt like a basket case. We couldn't find an interpreter. Like we couldn't find an interpreter, but the child had self-injurious behaviors. And I mean, like we needed to do therapy. So I kind of did the best that I could with a phenomenal early interventionist. And the mom realized that we were all struggling. So she actually adjusted her work schedule, bless her, to be there with us, with her child. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's really it's really hard, but it's reality, you know. And and we yeah. need to be a little bit, you know, forgiving of ourselves. We have to do what's best. So, you know, you get to a situation where the ch- the, the difficulty is identifying the child as having a child with a disorder and and not with a and not with a difference. So that's that's you know, and it's a lot easier when the child has obviously medical issues. You know, it's beyond cultural. It's what it is. Um, you know, if a child's eating and he's having difficulty eating, it's it. You know, maybe you maybe you the culture issue. Clear that you need yeah. me. So, so, right. so, but the the assessment is really important, and and just because we need to know, um, you know, if they qualify or not. Once they qualify, uh, and you're you're certain of that, uh, then we have to figure out how do we provide those services. And what you just did is very common. the The thing that we shouldn't do is ignore it. Is ignore the culture or ignore the language or you know, and just kind of we're just going to teach him in English. Or I what I've heard also has been I've heard clinicians say in school districts say um, we can't deliver these services in their language so we're going to wait until they learn English and then de- deliver it then well no no that's not no, that's not appropriate that's either so so we have this responsibility to provide services in the best that we can the most ethical way that we can um, so I have done exactly what you have done I had a, a family uh, who who you know were from Saudi Arabia and I didn't have any interpreters here and what did we do and so we did you know kind of Hannon type of uh, early intervention type of type of thing and, and trying to figure out what was culturally appropriate there was a lot of conversation with dad who was the only one that spoke English and then I know and that he would be involved in all the intervention and we taught him how to how to you know observe wait and listen and how to expand the utterances and how to wait and um, how to imitate what he, so we were able to work uh, as a as a as a pair you know trying to figure out this is what the this is what I think needs to you know needs to happen here here are the goals do they meet with the goals for your family um, you know if if I say or ask anything that goes against what you know culturally you know you do let me know so there's a lot of flexibility and it's just being that culturally aware and having cultural reciprocity which means that you are uh, accepting what what they're bringing in as part of their culture and you're also exchanging and letting them know you know what what your culture is, what the expectations are. There's this exchange that happens and, and, and it's done in a professional manner and it's done in a very respectful way. And so we do the best we can. The best thing to do is to, again, find a, an appropriate bilingual provider. If that doesn't happen, then we look for other ways. Um, using an interpreter is is a, a way that is used by many. And sometimes we don't want to use family, if at all possible, because there's that bias. But, we ha- but, some, but sometimes we have no choice. Sometimes we use the child. What people need to understand is how to use an interpreter, not all interpreters. Just because someone speaks another language doesn't make them a good interpreter. And I've been in situations where the interpreters are horrible. And they're not really, they're saying what they think you, you know, they should say. They're not saying anything that you're saying. So there's some training that's required so that you're, they're being your voice and not just coming up with their own ideas and their own, um, you know, their own feelings about things. That's not how it works. Um, yeah. Okay. We need to do one on that Yeah. because that's, I have said things um, and then no, I mean, like I don't speak it, but I can understand some Spanish. And then what was translated, I was like, that is not what I said at all. And that's not safe what you recommended. Right. So, like, exactly. And then that, and I've, I've been in that same situation where what was said was not only not correct, but it was completely the opposite of the advice I wanted to give. Let me just blow your world a little bit. Um, Google Translate has come a long way <laughs> from the old days. <laughs> are, and are we I, <laughs> I use the, uh, and, and it depends how you use it, but I use the um, the oral uh, translator. Okay, um, hang on. I'm, I'm, so, I'm going to Google the Google Translate. This is awesome. Yeah. Okay. So there's a microphone. And the trick to it is to keep really short phrases when you're translating it. And it will translate it orally back to you in that other language. But keep it really short phrases. Try not to use any, um, you know, any sayings or you know, it was really funny. We had one of our students that told the parent, they asked a question the other day and they used a Google translate and they said in Spanish to the parent, um, they were working on a McDonald's menu or something, trying to teach the parent how to order. And she says, well, what kind of foods do your kids like to eat? And the translator came back in Spanish with what kind of foods do your baby goats like to eat? So, oh yeah, I mean, that was, and the parent just looked, I mean, the, the person just looked and I had to kind of come in and it's like, you said baby goats and that's not what you meant. But so okay. it's not, so it's not perfect, but I want you to, did you find it? Are you, do you have okay, it? I'm, I, I just typed in what is their favorite food? And then 
Um, how do I change? But look at the microphone. You can just go to Google and you look at the microphone. And then, okay. I mean, once you get into like a Spanish or you could go to Google Translate and pick your language, whatever language you want to go English to Tagalog or English to okay. whatever. I'm going, I'm going English to Spanish. Okay. So you hit okay, the microphone on. and you just say, you know, good morning. How are you? And then you have it translate. What is their favorite food? Uh. Oh, wait. ¿Qué hay de comida favorita? Was that, was that all right? Yeah. Okay, that was pretty right, close. Okay, so then let me try. I'll, I'll talk. All right, so I instead of entering text, how do you? You can oh, just talk into it. There's a microphone there. You okay. see on the right-hand side. I had it, and then it disappeared. This is amazing. Yeah, so that's for really simple directions. Or if you want to say, I'm not going to be here next week, um, you know, or, you know, we need to cancel our session or something really short. If you're going to do... It, this is for emergencies. This is for, you know, to, and the parents will love it and you can teach them how to use it too. And then they can talk to you as well. Um, it's just, it's limited, but it's so much better than it used to be. And, and that's a tool that's available to anybody with a smartphone. So. Oh, this is wonderful. Okay. I can't figure out how to like, just. You have to play with it. You're just in, you know, yeah. we're recording. I'm, we're here. I'm just, I know this is, but this is awesome. What do you want for? Oh, yeah. No, I just, okay. I'm going to put it away now. <laughs> you want to play with I it? I totally enjoy My poor husband, when I wake up at like two o'clock in the morning, I always like research stuff on my phone. Like I can hear me like pulling up all the different languages on there. Okay. All right. I just looked at the clock. We have like five minutes Are you left. kidding? This has gone so fast. This, I know, right? Well, I mean, my goodness, this is how you and I talk every time. That's um, true. Everybody's like, how did we, how did that hour happen? Okay. So- I think we covered most of the second question, like how we can, you know, and some strategies, but we had one last question and it was what tips, what tips do you have for working with families who speak a language other than English and are from a culture different from that of the service provider? So, and we've, we've interspersed some. A of little that bit. Well. Is that, is that cultural reciprocity and respect that's really important that you acknowledge them and you don't come in as, you know, um, uh, with, with an agenda of you, you need to learn English, you know, or you know, for your child that you come in and you accept them at where they are, uh, emotionally, uh, you know, physically, um, so, you know, socially, whatever, culturally, where they are, we're there to provide a service for their child who has a disorder, who has a delay, who has a disability. And so, um, you meet the parent where they're at, you look at them in the eye people our different cultures smile and laugh at the same things we have so much more in common um, so you come in to as, as someone who's going to assess and that is huge when you're using an interpreter you don't look at the interpreter you look at the parent always you acknowledge them and you talk to them in first person you know hello my name is so and so I'm here to help your child to speak and then you wait for the interpreter to interpret and you you encourage the interpreter to also use first language. And, you know, you sometimes you go into different places and they might offer you food or they might offer you. There's always sometimes an exchange and you need to be open to those things. The important thing is to build trust so that you can work together. The language is a barrier, but it's not the biggest barrier. Sometimes the biggest barrier is the fact that we we close the door, we're afraid, and we don't inter interact human to human, person to person, to work together on this with this uh, with this child or with this adult. So that's a big that's my biggest tip. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> You're amazing. I'm just thinking like you need like a solid three hours just to go through this. So I really feel like we need to do a um um, um you you need to do webinars, friend. <laughs> You need to like lecture in math. <laughs> okay. No, those are very scary. Very scary. Really? But you're such a natural at this. Yeah. My goodness. This was uh -huh. this has been a lot of fun. I just want to let people know that you're in, we're all in this together. Just because I'm bilingual does not mean that I don't go through the same things that everybody does because I don't speak every language. I am right there with you trying to figure this out. There are many resources that are online through ASHA, through different universities. There are many free things. Go check out the um, the Leaders Project by Columbia uh, University, Dr. Um, Kate Crawley, and she's amazing. And there are some free uh, narrative assessments there. 
Um, there are some free uh, um, CEUs that you can get for preschool. Um, there are there's some um, tools for working with children with cleft palate from different countries and different languages. And so, and that's all free out there. And so we just need to do a little research. And, and ASHA has links to these places. So you go to that ASHA practice portal and you look at the multicultural and you can just put in a language and it comes up with um, with information and articles and links. So part of this is getting yourself educated and arming yourself with information and, and being bold and not being afraid. Always looking for your client, your patient, your student and their needs. I love that. Be bold. Don't be afraid. Advocate. Educate. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, if someone has a question specifically for you, how can they reach you? Well, um, they can reach me at my uh, at my univer- my uh, work email. So my okay. e- my f- my first name is Faye F E, and it's just like Santa Fe, New Mexico. So two letters F E dot Murray M U R R A Y at N A U, which is for Northern Arizona University at N A U dot E D U. So that's fe.murray at nau.edu. And I'm happy to answer questions. You know me, I am nerdy and I am comfortable with it. I prefer the term geek chic. So I can't stress the importance enough of, you know, replenishing my geek chic soul. So insert feeding matters. They're pediatric feeding resource library will fulfill what you need in order to do your job more efficiently. So from published research to helpful videos and recipes, Feeding Matters Resource Library has all the bases covered. Simply visit bit.ly backslash FM Resource Library to access the virtual hub of valuable information on pediatric feeding disorders. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and eat those babies.